Welcome back to the Fortitude Desk, folks. In studio with us today is Mr. Eric Lee, director of the Fourth Kimball Art Museum. Uh, before that, let's thank our Mr. Mark Stone with the Info Group for his his awesome help yeah, with our podcast. Yep, and another large gentleman named Jay Fitzgerald who handles all the audio video for us as well. Thank yeah, you thanks, too Jay. for very much. Uh, last week's guest, Grace Collins, uh, uh, she's a forward for the TCU soccer girls team. She uh, was inf- uh, influential in the two one victory over Texas A and M on this past Sunday. So great job, Grace Collins. Yep. Is it because she was on the show, Brenton? I think so. I think everybody who's been on the show has had winning seasons of some sort. Or great success. I know that our, our guest this time around should probably will acquire even bigger and better art we, than ever before. We have so. a feeling some big acquisition might follow this show. Well, I'm yeah. thrilled to be here. <laughs> yes. But you had a you had an unusual uh, 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 insight to some comments from last time, the fishing shirt comment. Yep. I, we've received a lot. They've and And some men have actually reached out to me and taken offense to it. And then it brings me into another question that I have for you being an elite elite athlete like yourself. I don't um, know who told you that, but continue. A lot of the friends that I know, they consider mowing the lawn a workout of some sorts. And I know that you did a lot of working out when you played football. Would you consider that um, a workout? Is, a, is mowing in, on a hot August day a, a workout? <laughs> I would not consider it a workout, but as my watch tells me, a goal is a goal. So if I reach my goal, I think I've done something. Steps only, or mine does like a deal where it, it's, it measures me as doing some type of exercise where my upper body's not moving right. at all. Well, this yeah. goes off, I think, sometimes when I'm sleeping or when I'm sitting on my chair. So I don't know yeah. how what it's actually measuring, but anyway, uh, yeah. I would say, Eric, what do you think? Mowing the yard? Um Exercise or no? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that question never been posed to you yet. So yeah. thank you for answering. Well, that's that's we're always striving to you know help in men's fitness here. Mm-hmm. So let's get on to our very yes. Distinguished and before we guest. jump in, Mr. Lee, your the piece behind you you might have noticed is part of the Fortitude Collection. It's the Soleil Levant by ah. uh, Mr. Mo- Mr. Monet. I think you're familiar. Uh, this piece was acquired back in the year, let's see, 2020, maybe. I can't disclose the price we paid for, but what are your what are your thoughts on maybe the the framing job? Uh, <laughs> Excellent framing. <laughs> Thank we you. need advice uh, you. at the Kemble for framing. Or right. is, is Aaron Brothers places where you do look for the art? Or, or? occasionally, yeah. some of our greater works have, have okay. come from there. We'll stop. Uh, we'll stop humiliating you because you <laughs> definitely deserve a better than that. But first out of the out of the gate, Mr. Eric Lee. He's the fourth director of the Kemble Art Museum. He arrived there in 2009, so he's been there quite a bit of time now. He's a native of North Carolina. Can you tell us about your childhood growing up in North Carolina, what that was like? Well, uh, I'm from a small town in the eastern part of the state, and uh, North Carolina is a lot like Fort Worth in in many ways. And uh, there's, I think, an affinity between the two places, and I feel very much at home in Fort Worth, having grown up in North Carolina. What was this, what was the town you were born? It got called Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. Okay, very good. Small town in the eastern part of the state. From there, Britton, he went to a school. Um, I think I always wished I could get in, but they never really wrote me too many notes. But um, <laughs> a place called Yale. Mm. Have you heard of it? I have. I hear it's My a really good school. My grandfather went there. My oh. grandfather was a whiff and poof there. Oh, great. In the Fantastic. Group. Yep. Do you sing? I do not. I uh, <laughs> but, but he plays the pedal steel, Eric. We'll, uh, we always have to mention that on the okay. show. Yes. yes. So uh, you earned your BA, your MA, and your PhD in art history at Yale. Why did art become something you were passionate about? What 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 
triggered you to become a lover of art? Well, when I started college, I did not intend to major in history of art. And I found myself taking art history courses and, you know, three a semester. I just absolutely loved it. I had a passion for, for the subject and I ended up majoring in it. And, uh, I didn't go straight to grad school. I, I decided to do something else entirely, and I worked on Capitol Hill for two years okay. for the Senate Intelligence Committee. I saw that as well. And Can then, you get, tell us what that means? Uh, well, the Senate Intelligence Committee is the U.S. Senate Oversight Committee for the intelligence community, and I uh, I was interested in in politics at the time and and in intelligence and and foreign affairs. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a, this job as as a research assistant on the committee, um, a low level position on on the intelligence committee. But it was extremely interesting, and Very so many cool. interesting things were going on. What uh, kinds in the of world things that were time. going on at well, that time? The collapse of communism, mm. Tian Tiananmen Square took place at that time, wow. and so there was a lot of uh, many interesting things going on at that That's at great. that time. That is great. So I was there for two years, um, had a great experience, but I knew I wanted to go back to grad school to get a PhD with the idea of becoming a museum director. And so that, that's what I did. Is there a piece of art in your life that you, you first off gave you that, that feeling that you're like, I want to be in, in more involved in this world? Well, my parents, when I was little, would take me to museums, um, the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And I just, you know, fell in love with that place. Mm -hmm. And and then um, when I went to grad school, the museums at Yale, just I, I love those museums. And they were both designed by Louis Kahn, who's the architect of the Kemble, of course. Oh. And it was really those museums that uh, that gave me this real passion for not only art history, but Louis Kahn and his, his architecture. And uh, when I was in grad school, people used to ask me what my dream job was. And I used to always say, the Kimball, I wanted to be director of the Kimball Art Museum. Really? And so when I actually got the job, I and mean, people could, couldn't believe it because they remembered what, what I had said that so many years really before cool. grad school. So I feel very lucky to be here. That is outstanding. Right, right before you got to the Kimball, though, a few years, you spent at the Taft Museum in Cincinnati. Yes, I And did. then the Oklahoma University, uh, is it school museum? Uh, yes, uh, the art museum there. Okay. Yeah. That was a period of uh, several years? Um, I, I was there for about nine years or so. Nine years, okay. And uh, it was a great experience. It was my first time living in this part of, of the country. And uh, I had a great experience, and we were able to build a new building. And the museum grew a lot while I was there and uh, just had a great experience. Very nice. And from there, obviously, the Kimball call comes calling. In 2009, you jumped at it. It's your dream job. That's actually fantastic. Uh, the, the, your predecessor, Mr. Pillsbury, Edmund Pillsbury, did you know the man? Um, I did know the man. He was not my immediate predecessor. Timothy Potts, Potts was that's, my immediate predecessor. And uh, and uh, Ted, I, I knew Ted as well. Okay. And Ted, Ted died about a year after I started okay. working at the Kimball. Very good. In Very fact, good. exactly a year after I started work. So I knew I knew him and I know Timothy Potts. Of Surely. Course. What was your first day on the job like at the Kimball? You've, you've achieved this incredible thing. What, what are you feeling, if you can recall that far back? Well, I remember um, walking into that building and my office, and, and you know, I have such respect for that building and the architecture. I, I, there was you know, a silence almost. Being in that building, it was like a holy space, sort of. 
I felt like I could, couldn't raise my voice. I'm not one to raise my voice, sure. period. But it's uh, I had just an enormous respect for the job, for the building, for the museum, and in uh, the museum's position within the wider art world. I was just I was elated to be there. Surely. So the Kimball Art Museum, Britain, you, we have some we have some interesting stats to share with our with our audience. Uh, please chime in where appropriate. But you guys see roughly three hundred thousand on average people per, yes, per year, depending on the exhibition. You know, sometimes less, sometimes right. a, a bit more, depending on, on the exhibition. How's that fair compared? COVID. <laughs> yeah, oh COVID yeah, for sure. Compared to other museums, does that rank in the top ten most visited, or um, well, where does no, that sit? I, the, the museums in New York, uh, museums and cities that have a huge tourist uh, mm-hmm. uh, attendance, they're going to have many more, many more people. So New York gets a tremendous number the met has millions of people okay um but um the the um north texas doesn't have the tourist um the number of tourists that some right. other parts of the country get so we're not going to have that kind of attendance but um we are happy with the attendance that we we get mm-hmm. because of the size of the museum um unlike the met the kimball is fairly small mm-hmm. in terms of square footage and so, um, and so we, we have about as many as the building can accommodate. Okay. One of the interesting things that I saw that we talked about, but the Kimball under your direction, you guys have about one or two, maybe acquisitions a year on average, about right. Uh, about right. Yeah. Besides the piece behind you that we're going to try to sell you here <laughs> after the show. Uh, I know this is a very hard th- thing to do to capture these, these, uh, significant pieces in the art world. Um, are you, are constantly looking, I assume, how do things find you? How do how do real opportunities find their way to your to your email inbox? Well, um, every acquisition has a different story, and uh, sometimes we are approached by dealers. Sometimes we find works that um, that are coming up for auction that dealers may have, and sometimes um, works of art come to the museum through the garage of the Kimball just. Showing up, I'm referring to this yes. rediscovery of a of we are Mannington. Gonna, we'll get to that here in a, in a bit, no doubt. So, so it, or does sometimes it happen where there's a very you know wealthy person who passes away, and then it, it, this rumor mill begins that oh my gosh, this person had this collection or this particular piece, we should reach out. You know, I mean, I would assume that that's way some of those sure, happen. Sure, all, all of the above, and mm-hmm. then, um, and then with some works like the uh, like the Michelangelo, um, we knew about that because it was cleaned by Michael Gallagher, the head of paintings conservation at the Met, and he was a former Kimball employee, mm-hmm. and he told uh, he told Claire Barry, our conservator, about it, and so that's how we sort of got the inside. So your work that. at the intelligence committee has paid off yes, in the art exactly. world. Then. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed, I bet there's a lot of work behind. And then the scenes. also want to say, um, you know, we a couple of years ago we were given a Modigliani sculpture, which was an extremely important and very very rare sculpture, and that was in a private collection, um, uh, Gwen Wiener's collection, um, and and she had lived in Fort Worth with her family growing up. And then she decided that she wanted to give it to the Kimball. And, uh, it's, it was one of the most important uh, gifts the Kimball has ever received. So not not to make a light of that, but we have to, I'm just curious when, uh, NHL team wins the Stanley cup, they each get a night with the Stanley cup at home and they do take it around. Do you get time to, I know you don't take it home, but do you get a time to like say, Oh my gosh, 
I'm sitting here with this piece and that's got to be an amazing feeling. Well, uh, when you have it in the conservation lab, um, it, it really is when you could really get up close and, and, and it's, it's, it is a wonderful feeling. Right. Absolutely. Or when you're looking at a painting on, under a microscope or something like that, or when the, our conservator is cleaning the painting and you see it in strip state and it's, mm-hmm. it's really great. Sure. So the Kimball Museum, they, you showcase uh, art, European, African, Asian, basically everything except American art and contemporary art. Correct? Yes. And we do not uh, show those because of the Amon Carter for American art and then the Fort Worth Modern for right. contemporary uh, art. So you're, you're very good about acknowledging those two because I've heard you speak several times before and you're really nice about uh, mentioning those. You guys work well, in conjunction. Great museums, absolutely. Sure. sure. Can I ask a question? Um, it's. What would you say, coming from your background and the job that you have, what is the primary purpose of art in society? I think that oftentimes, you know, art gets maybe a bad rap from some and then not as um, as much accolades as it should. So w- what would you say that that uh, the the reason, the primary reason, well, and the collection of it? And, and sure. Well, I don't do. want to sound hokey, but I really do think that art is like the soul of society. Mm-hmm. And through art, we get to know um, what it is to be human, uh, what it is to live in the world we live in. It's also a way of of uh, connecting with with um, past former civilizations. I mean, at the Kimball, you can look at ancient Egyptian works ancient Assyrian works and we can connect to them through, through the art. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that was actually a beautiful explanation of that. That's, that's fantastic. So the Kimball was built or opened, excuse me, in 1972. Yes. Uh, Louis Kahn, who you mentioned, uh, designed the building, uh, Kay and Velma Kimball, the two initial benefactors for the museum. Absolutely. They, their, their pieces still exist in, in plethora at the museum. Um, these people are no longer with us now, but then here comes Renzo Piano, another architect, helps you helps you design the pavilion area, correct? Yes, it yes. It was built not too not too many years ago. Um, that was a big undertaking, to put it mildly. Could you speak a little bit about the architecture? And I've read stories about how difficult it was to build the the initial museum uh, architecturally. Is there a is there a story there you can share with us? Uh, sure, the Renzo Piano building focus on on that. I think the Louis Kahn and the Renzo, well, but maybe it started. Well, good. yes, you're right. the The Louis Kahn building is coming up on its 50th anniversary in October of 2022, and when that building um, opened, um, the Kimball was uh, the building was recognized as one of the greatest museum buildings ever built. And, uh, and, um, I know as it was going up, I hear people in Fort Worth still to this day, some people say they remember when it was going up, they question whether it would, it would even stand up with these unusual mm. vaults, et cetera. And, uh, but then when it opened, it was almost immediately hailed as, as this masterpiece. And I remember a story that Ben Fortson, um, um, Ben Fortson and his wife, Kay Fortson have led the Kimball, mm. uh, Kay Fortson was uh was Kay Kimball's niece. Okay. And she uh she was president of the Kimball board from 75 until 2017. She's currently chairman and their daughter is now president. Well, Ben Fortson, um I've heard him say many times that when he walked through the front doors 
when they finally finished the building, he said, yeah, I think this is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone had been a little concerned. Um, it was a leap of faith to trust uh, Louis, Louis Kahn to, uh, that this really would work um, because it was so unusual structurally. And, uh, and, and you know, what the greatest, one of the greatest works of art, the largest work, work of art that the Kimball has is certainly the building. Is that and, common for most museums or not really? Well, um, m- very few museum buildings actually rise to that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, um, I, I do believe the Kimball is the greatest museum building that's ever been built. Um, I mean, there, there are other buildings like the Guggenheim in New York. Yes, that is an absolutely great building, but you know, the, you know, it may not be so great for exhibiting works of art. Mm-hmm. Well, one great thing about the Kimball is it's not only a great building in and of itself, but it's a great building to show art in. The light is absolutely spectacular. The scale is just perfect for mm-hmm. it. Um, the, with the Guggenheim in New York, Frank Lloyd Wright's building almost overwhelms the art. Though I will say I've seen some installations in the Guggenheim that look absolutely fantastic, that work very well with that building. So that's but, uh, a really big part of it too, is the yes. installation within the building, how all that aesthetic is. Yes, like that and at, at the at the Kimball, the art really completes the building and it gives scale to the walls. Mm-hmm. And though I have seen the building with nothing in it when we were redoing the floors and it's so beautiful, that mm-hmm. building. We thought about just opening the building empty just so oh, people could see it. That'd be it's, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the Kimball operates on a $12 million a year, more or less budget. About, a little, about little, more, a little, little more, more than, than that. that. So uh, that's Six, 16 or so. And it's, it's funded primarily through a found, the Kimball Foundation. Yes, the Kimball Art Foundation. Correct. Um, this and it's unusual uh, as far as art museums go in, in that it's it's a foundation. That, so the Kimball Art Museum is owned and operated by the Kimball Art Foundation. Oh, well, this may be a question you can't answer, but I have to ask anyway. And if you can't, you'll, you won't answer it. But the insurance required to, for a, a, a museum of this size um, and the value of the art inside is are these things you can tell us about? Because I'm sure it's a, it's a it's a very large number, but it's considerable. <laughs> yes. And you're you're insuring against theft, damage, um, all the things that could happen to a piece of art. How do you how do you um, insure a Monet piece? Is that there is well, a, there is a price to do that? Yes, we 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 have regular valuations done on on the collection, and and we we keep up with these valuations, the current prices, and uh, and then we work with our insurers um, to make sure that they are insured to the extent that they should be insured. And we have to ensure not only our collection, but also works of art on loan for sure. these uh, um, exhibitions that we do. And, uh, and I will say also, um, there's this great program that the government has in which um, the government uh, indemnifies uh, exhibitions um, in, in museums. We have to apply for, for um, this, but it saves the Kimball and other museums millions of dollars and there's very little cost to the government, um, and unless there's a major loss. But you know, knock on wood, um, we haven't had any major loss like that. I was about but to ask if there was the claim yet. So no, have thank you ever goodness, had, knock I on mean, wood. What was the movie with Pierce Brosnan and that lady, and she was the insurance? Oh right, you remember it was a Steve, I think there was a remake. Yes, and um, he, it's. Uh, I cannot think of the name uh, of it, but so I know does, what you're talking about. 
that doesn't happen. Right. So the dumb people co- dropping from the roof yeah. with, yeah. with smoke it, it, in yeah. the gallery. But you have the intelligence committee background, so it can probably be handled. <laughs> have you ever had a attempted theft of a piece? Is that something you not, can tell us? Knock on wood, we have not. Incredible. At my former museum, there was a theft uh, 20 years or so before I arrived. And uh, but they got the got the works back. Oh, good, good, interesting. Okay, well, the, that covers the the Kimball section. Um, the last question before we have a little pr- presentation for you is the exhibits you've pulled in through the through the years. One particular we saw most recently, a few years back, but the Monet um, uh, late years exhibit was phenomenal. We visited actually four or five times. It was an amazing show. I, I, I can't even imagine how that happens. But is there a is there a way that you pull that to the Kimball and make that a reality for the city of Fort Worth? Is there more well, story to it than that? The Kimball is able to have great exhibitions in part because we have a great collection. And uh, to be able to borrow works of art, you need to have, you need to be able to uh, lend works of art. And so our collection, though small, is in great demand for uh, for loans at other museums. So at any given time, we have works literally all over the world um, uh, in, in exhibitions. Things have slowed down a bit recently with COVID, but, uh, but the Kimball also has a reputation for, for um, having these great exhibitions. And, uh, and so other museums are willing to lend to us. With the late Monet show, um, we, we owe so much we, to, to George Shackelford, our deputy director, he is one of the leading experts in the world on impressionist art, and so um, people were, um, other museums were more than happy to lend not only to the Kimball, but also to George's exhibition. And uh, I had other museum directors come to town, and they were just amazed that we got some of the loans that we got for that for that show. It was absolutely spectacular. It's one of my favorite exhibition since I've been at, at the Kimball. I'd say you nailed it. My, what, part, my what partner. What does that bartering look like? Is, I'll give you one <laughs> Monet for two Rembrandt. How does so, that Sometimes work? it works exactly like Seriously? that. Um, at other times, uh, someone will lend us an exhibition and they'll expect us to be generous with them in the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, that's even happening right now with works that were on loan to the Monet exhibition. So um, I can only yeah. imagine the paperwork. There's no doubt. If we, Letting if we, JW if we say borrow no, something value mine. If we say no to a loan, um, another museum is less likely to lend to us in right. the future. Or will they ask again? Or or no? Is it well, typically? Well, yes. I mean, some sometimes we go back. If there's an initial negative response, we sometimes do go back, depending mm-hmm. on how important the loan is for us. But then also our exhibitions. If I say so myself, the exhibitions that the Kimball does are among the, in my opinion, the best exhibitions in the world, mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are very few uh, museums in the United States that have the exhibition uh, program that mm-hmm. we have. Um, and I, I, it, it really is amazing. Um, yeah. Some, some of the shows that we have. Um, so as I said before, other museums and private collectors are more often than not more than willing to lend to us. And then some museums lend to us because they want to see how their paintings or sculptures will look in the Louis Kahn building or the Renzo Piano building for for that matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
All right, Eric. So our crack research team and our Fortitude um, exhibit uh, or our Fortitude uh, collection team put together a little presentation for you on the screen. Okay. We're going to run some pieces by you that we know you're familiar with. Uh, hopefully you'll share a little bit of a a story because each of them have one. So we're going to just say, let's just do this for fun. See if you can guess the first piece we're about to show. (laughs) Michelangelo. (laughs) Caravaggio. Poussin. Nicholas Poussin. Uh, Yes. So, okay. Go ahead. I I was going to give you the the title, Sacrament of the Ordination. Nicholas Poussin is a French painter. Circa 19, or excuse me, 1636 to 1640. So a few years, oh, a few years ago. you look at the Kimball now? I thought we were going to let Eric describe I'm trying that. to intro, <laughs> intro him with the piece so our listeners know who we're looking at. Okay. So this painting uh, shows Christ giving the keys to St. Peter uh, with the 12 apostles. And then off to the left, you see the man reading a book. That's St. Paul, who wasn't one of the original 12, but would uh, later go on to preach the gospel. And then they're standing in front of the River Jordan, and the figures in the grove of trees behind them um, are um, ancient philosophers, and they represent the old order that will give way to the new order Now, um, of the New Testament. Now, this painting is uh, part of a series of seven paintings called the Seven Sacraments. And um, within European art history, this series was an absolute landmark um, series, very famous. And in the 18th century, they were among the best-known paintings in Rome. And the first time an export license was ever denied for cultural patrimony reasons was over this set of paintings. In the 1730s, Sir Robert Walpole, um, the British prime minister, um, tried to buy the paintings, and the Pope said they were too important to leave Rome. Uh, but then in the 1780s, the fourth Duke of Rutland was able to buy them, and they, the major painter, Sir Joshua Reynolds, negotiated the purchase, and they brought the paintings to London first and then to Rutland's castle. Um, and um, that's uh, in 1816, there was a fire there. One of them burned. Um, one of them was sold um, uh, in 1939, and it went to the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And then we were able to buy this from the current Duke of Rutland in 2011, I believe. Under your direction, right? Uh, yes. Did you know, uh, Eric, that he this that um, Poussin painted for Cardinal Cardinal Richelieu, Richelieu I and did. Louis and Louis the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, Fourteenth. Well, actually, Thirteenth as well. Uh, absolutely. Um, so Poussin, he's one of the most important painters in the history of French art, and. Um, for hundreds of years, he had this enormous influence. You have painters like Jacques-Louis David and Ang, uh, Cezanne. Um, Cezanne famously said that he wanted to redo um, um, Poussin after nature. And uh, it's so um, you wouldn't have, I mean, it's, there's, it's no exaggeration to say Picasso would look very different if not for uh, Poussin. Very um, nice. Picasso was greatly influenced by Cezanne, who in turn was so greatly influenced by, uh, by Poussin. Very good. Well, we're going to grant you one point for that answer. That is the correct answer. <laughs> Thank so, you. Do yes. you. Do you see that lineage? Is there, is there any kind of a map that shows those influences like that, whether it be by dotted line or straight line, like you just explained, where you could say, okay, Picasso influenced by it, so-and-so influenced by it. It's, um, that's very fascinating. We should do something like that. Next on the... Uh, and also I want to say please. about this painting, it is an 
unbelievably great condition, absolutely pristine condition. Um, it was painted, as you said, in the 1630s. And you know, I saw this painting when it was in strip state in the conservation lab, and it looked practically uh, as it does in the galleries today. We could have hung it in the galleries at, at that time. There was very, very little damage on this painting. Well done. Well done. Next up. Condition is important when we consider works of art yes, to sir. acquire. Yes, sir. Next up, this piece is titled The Edge of a Forest with a Grain Field by, I believe it's probably Jakob van Rysdale, yes. a Dutch painter. Did I get Jakob right? Yes, that's it. Yeah, painted circa 1656. And uh, I know this guy to be one of the greatest landscape painters maybe ever in history. Absolutely. That- he was certainly the greatest 17th century Dutch landscape painter. Uh, Rembrandt also painted great lands- landscapes, but uh, landscape was Rysdale's specialty. And he created a new type of landscape. He would look at ordinary nature, like this edge of a forest uh, uh, um, by, by a grain field, and he would make that ordinary landscape the subject of his paintings, but he would make that ordinary landscape. He would give it a grandeur and a poetry um, uh, that, uh, that uh, um, uh, and making in this particular painting, and you know, there's, there, there's almost a monumentality about the painting, yet it is an everyday, ordinary landscape. Yeah, I mentioned the condition of the Poussin. The condition of this painting is extraordinary as well. When you're in the museum, look at the reflections on the water. Um, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it, and with the water lilies there, it's almost like a Monet water lily Indeed. hundreds of years later. But this approach to landscape um, was, like the Poussin, enormously influential. And so you have artists like Gainsborough in the 18th century was looking back at Rysdale. And then Constable in the early 19th century was looking at you know the ordinary landscapes um, uh, that he grew up with, mm-hmm. not landscapes that had historical associations or anything like that, just ordinary landscapes, but imbuing them with emotion. And of course, that approach um, also had an impact on the Impressionists later in the 19th century as well. And I also want to say the Rysdale looks especially great. Um, Above the lava, <laughs> lava land, land there. Oh, so I was going to point that. I'm, I'm so glad, glad you. you pointed that out. I was going to ask <laughs> if you've ever presented or discussed <laughs> art above a purple lava lamp. I like think this. this must be the first time. <laughs> I must tell you, Eric, our cameraman and audio video guy Jay. He he did tell me he believes he can paint this same painting. He felt very confident when he told me that today. So I wish one oh, to know you. We have, we have a we have okay. an artist We're, in the mix. But so. paint by numbers was not out at this <laughs> okay. particular time. In not the, not quite in yet. The, but right. you did bring something up. And I want to just just kind of jump in. You talked about initially how, you know, so much of this art is the reflection of humanity. And you've now told us that this is an ordinary landscape that somebody enriched because of their almost like ability to extract emotion and put mm-hmm. it on there. Yes. And, and so it, does that start this curve or that's always been with art or or is that just the the essence of art? And, and just well, I, I think artists, artists. Great artists always put something of themselves in what they were painting, whether it's Michelangelo or Titian or you know, any artist is going to do that um, if they're at a certain level. But what's unusual about this is that Rysdale is taking such an ordinary 
uh, nature, mm-hmm. just an everyday, ordinary nature. And then he's imbuing it with this emotion. And then also, in this case, a certain grandeur and monumentality. And that tree, um, the great oak there, you know, it's almost like it's almost like a person. Almost mm-hmm. you could you know, think of it in those terms. But the painting is also a, a sort of a um, r- reminder of time. You see a fallen oak there, um, mm-hmm. and um, and so we know that the monumental oak that we see there in the future, at some point, will be fallen and dying as well. Um, Do you think the Fortitude logos help the the painting or hurt? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that oak shows fortitude. Yeah. It, beautiful. We didn't know if it would be considered <laughs> vandalism if we just put a small fishing shirted individual here, but we just left it to the art world. All right. Next up for you, Eric. Um, this guy's got a story and um, we discussed this prior to the show, but this is the interior of Saint Ambrosio. Did I say that right? Saint Ambrosio. Saint Ambrosio by Richard Parks Bonington, a British painter, uh, circa 1826. And this one made some pretty good headlines here not too long ago. Uh, before I get into that, did Boddington, did he die early? Like your He age died 26? one month shy of his 26th birthday. So young, so, young guy in yeah. this piece, though. Um, twenty eight, he died. One of your acquisitions as well. But recently, could you tell us the story? Sure. This, um, this is one of the most unusual acquisitions. So Bonington is an extremely important painter, very influential, though he died very young. And because he died young, there are not many Boningtons around. And uh, so he's, he's a very rare artist. Making him more valuable. Well, sure, because there there's so few of them, yeah. mm-hmm. and they very rarely come on the market. Um, and and then there are uh, there are certain um, collectors who have who would buy almost every Bonington that would come on the market, including Paul Mellon, for instance. And uh, and the Yale Center for British Art actually um, has a large collection of Bonningtons because it was the museum was founded by Paul Mellon, and he bought almost every Bonington he could get his hands on. So um, Bonington is an artist. I've always loved his work. And, uh, and, and as I said before, a very rare artist. And then um, the most amazing story happened. Um, we actually bought another Bonington in, in 2009. So I was thrilled with that painting. And, uh, and then um, a few years ago, I got a call from Max Schaefer, um, yes. and he said that he had a collection that he wanted to show me, and uh, and I uh, um, I said, well, you know, bring it by the uh, by the Kimball, and we'll take a look at it. It was a hot June day, so I said park in the garage because I wanted to keep everything out of the sunlight, and so um, he he arrives on my way out to the garage. I asked George Shackelford, our deputy director, to uh, come with me uh, to take a look at uh, at the collection. And Max started pulling things um, out of the truck, and we were admiring what he had. And then he pulled this um, beautiful little church interior um, that was signed at the time by this 19th century Scottish artist named David Roberts. David Roberts. And uh, George and I admired the painting. And uh, uh, Mac put everything back in the truck and left. And uh, George and I both actually took photographs of the Roberts, though, with our iPhone. 
I still have that photograph taken in the garage of the Kimball. And uh, anyway, a few days later, George was doing a Google image search for Bonington watercolors, and it was for a completely unrelated reason. And then lo and behold, he sees in the Wallace Collection in London a studio watercolor that was clearly based on the oil sketch that we had just seen in the garage of the Kimball a few days before. Now, a studio watercolor means that it was painted in the studio based on a sketch painted elsewhere. And uh, so what what we did, we got um, a catalog of Bonington's works that had been published just a couple of years uh, earlier, um, written by Patrick Noon, the leading Bonington expert. And in the catalog entry for the watercolor, um, Patrick had written that it was based on an untraced oil sketch painted April 11th, 1826 in Milan. And we know about that oil sketch because Bonington's traveling companion in Italy wrote home to his parents in Paris that Bonington had painted this uh, this painting inside the church, and uh, it was the first painting that um, Bonington made on his first and only trip to uh, to Italy. So we call Max Schaefer and have him bring the painting back over, and uh, I call Patrick Noon, and Patrick starts asking questions. Well, why is it painted on? Is it something called a Davies mill board, the support that it was painted on. And yes, it actually was. He said, does it have a sticker on the back? The sticker had been removed, but you could see the shadow where the sticker had been. Uh, I send Patrick um, photographs of it, um, uh, infrared images that we had taken in our, our um, conservation lab. And uh, Patrick says, He's almost sure it's Bonington. And then he actually comes to the Kimball and he says, there's absolutely no question. This is certainly the, uh, this untraced oil sketch. And, uh, and of all artists, Bonington being so incredibly rare, mm-hmm. it, it just, the odds of this happening were so slim. And also the odds of George doing this Google image search just a couple of days, it probably two days after we had seen this in the garage of the Kimball. How did you make the discovery to confirm your thoughts? How did you, you cleaned the, you cleaned the piece? Well, I mean, the, it was confirmed by Patrick New. Okay. And but it had this other guy, yeah, David what Roberts. What was the deal with the other name? David Roberts. On there. Oh, oh, David Roberts. So everyone asked, well, what about David Roberts? Well, um, that that was a fake signature, and it's incredibly ironic because David Roberts has always been less valuable than Bonington. So a fake David Roberts signature was painted on an authentic Bonington. Mm-hmm. And we know the whole entire early history of the painting. Um, Bonington never signed these oil sketches. And when he died, the contents of the studio was sold. And we know the early history. It was sold at, um, at auction in 1835 and bought by William Beckford, this major, probably the most important um, collector in Britain at the time. Twenty-some paintings in the National Gallery in London mm-hmm. were owned by um, William Beckford. And then he dies in the late 1840s. And it took seven days, I believe, to auction off his collection. And I think that the identity with Bonington was lost at that time because it's an atypical subject for Bonington. 
Bonington is better known for views of Venice, like that other oil sketch in the Kimball, or for coastal scenes. And this being a church interior, the subject is a bit atypical. So I think the identification with Bonington was lost at that time. And then a dishonest dealer, probably in the late 19th or early 20th century, um, got the painting, didn't know who painted it. And uh, he knew that David Roberts, in addition to views of the Middle East, also painted quite a few church interiors. And he wanted to attach a name to it because a, a painting with an unknown artist is more valuable than one that's anonymous, usually. And uh, so he had a signature forged on it. I think that when we air this video, we need to put the price tag symbol just building up on each each (laughs) time. Because each one of these things you say, it's just like more rare. More rare, more rare. Well, like I, know just, the, I know this one. This was pub, This was a Star Telegram front page story when when you guys discovered mm-hmm. this from Mac. It was a six hundred thousand dollar purchase, I believe. That was about right. We, we, we don't talk about. We don't talk. We, we don't do talk money. Prices. But that was. I, I have heard that from good sources. But anyway, it's a phenomenal story. So yes, we'll, we had to. We're, this is what's going to happen in the when we replay. Right. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. <laughs> Next up, this is uh, this is one that's very familiar to most people. Weeping Willow by a guy by the name of Claude Monet. Have you heard of him, Britton? He was a Frenchman, but this is painted. That's in, a sad country song, I think, in some some places. <laughs> circa 1918-19. So I think the story that I know about this is he painted this as a kind of a homage to the end of the war, end of World War One. He was, he, I guess, he was sad, and he was kind of in his garden. He could hear the battle going on in the distance. Absolutely. People during the war encouraged him to leave, but he refused to. He stayed in Giverny, mm-hmm. and he could hear the the battle going on right. in the distance. In your uh, your exhibit, you had the Monet, the late years. I think this was one of the pieces. Well, it was, was inspired ex- by yeah. this painting. Inspired, and so um, we have two Monets in the collection. We have an early Monet. Um, in fact, the first uh, painting that he exhibited at the Salon in Paris. And then we have this great late Monet, which is in a very different style. And, uh, and so um, we decided um, several years ago to do two Monet exhibitions, one on early Monet, um, inspired by that early Monet that we have, and then the late Monet exhibition inspired by this painting. And, uh, you know, so, yes, it, it was the inspiration for the show. We can talk all show. day about this, guy. So the next piece, uh, this one was your first acquisition and quite possibly your biggest because it really put um, it put you. I mean, forgive me for cheapening this, but it puts you on the map in a really big way because of what it is. Which one uh, do you think it is? He already knows <laughs> the Torment of Saint Anthony. It was it was acquired in two thousand nine, right after you got here, got to the Kimball. Um, it's this is Michelangelo's. Uh, I think I'm saying this correctly. His first piece. He was age twelve or thirteen when he painted it. It, it was his first painting. Painting, yes. And it's showing fortitude as well. St. Anthony is. <laughs> right. Um, this, the acquisition of this painting was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. I just couldn't believe that we were able to acquire this. This is the only painting by Michelangelo in the Americas. And uh, it was his first painting. It's extremely well documented in the early sources. And, uh, and, and that's why we know that it's, it's, uh, it's Michelangelo. But I learned about this my second day on the job um, at, at the Kimball. Went up to New York with our conservator, uh, Claire Barry, 
um, met with the curators and conservator at the Met, and uh, and um, we ultimately were were able to to buy this. Um, and it's just amazing. How many uh, years into the job at the Kimball were you when you did this? I learned about it my second day on the job, which was in March of 2009. Are your headphones working, Britain? Because, <laughs> and well, I'm and, just, and then I, I kept thinking, this is just, it's just unbelievable. I'm just and, trying and, to think of where you got this dream job that you wanted, and then this happens in it, such a short time frame. It, it was, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. At the time, I thought I was going to get run over by trying a to put truck or something. I got you. I got you. I've seen this several, t- more than several times. It's a very small piece. Um, it's almost if you weren't looking for it, you'd have to stumble onto it because if mm-hmm. you don't, unless you didn't know, um, it's incredible how small it is, but how detailed it is. And just to stand in front of it, it's 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 a goose bumper, right? I mean, it's uh, absolutely. And the thing is, before we we bought it. Um, uh, there, it was a lost painting and a rediscovery. That's why we were able to to. I mean, it would have been in, in a museum hundreds of years ago if if uh, it had not been lost. And when we bought it, there was a divide um, among people who either believed that it was by Michelangelo and then some who did not. And uh, it was sold and given an export license from England. And so, in general, at the beginning, there was a divide between American art historians and English art historians. The English did not believe it. The Americans did. And, uh, and then when it was cleaned and studied at the Met, um, changes the descri- detailed descriptions of the painting from, um, from the 16th century um, make us know that this painting either has to be the original or else a copy after, after the original. And then when it was cleaned and studied, changes that the artist made were all over the painting and it became clear that this was not a copy after another work. And, uh, and um, I remember asking Keith Christensen, um, the f- former chair of European paintings at the Met, he just retired last month, um, how sure he was that this is Michelangelo. He said, I'm absolutely 100% certain, but it, it'll take 20 years for there to be a consensus. And, uh, and so when we first put the painting on view at the Met because we wanted as many people to see it as possible. Mm-hmm. And more people would see it in New York initially than, than in Fort Worth. It was very nerve wracking because you didn't know how, the, what the reaction would be. And it was enormously positive. It, it was given a one painting exhibition at the Met and uh, it got a huge attendance um, that summer, the summer of 2009. What did you get in return from the Met? Did you get a good... The Met has goods. been incredibly generous lenders to mm-hmm. us. Um, they always are. So um, we're they're close friends of Good. the Kimballs. But then, um, so there were still some doubters about the a- attribution. Um, I was so pleased, though, that most people believed it. The thing is, before we bought it, we tried to come up with every convincing argument against the attribution. And we couldn't come up with a single argument against it. And, uh, and so, but I, I said to myself at the time, if we don't buy it and it ends up being Michelangelo, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. But it would be a hundred times worse if we bought it and it ended up not being Michelangelo. Uh, and, but I was very pleased with, with the outcome. But then six years after we had bought the painting, um, this fantastic discovery was made. Um, 
underneath the surface of the painting, our conservator had seen for years these scribble marks underneath the paint surface. She had seen them in infrared images and x-rays, but she couldn't decipher what these scribble marks were. And then new technology has been invented, a new type of camera. It's called a hyperspectral camera. And John Delaney, this conservation scientist at the National Gallery of Art, came. He's the guru with, of this technology. There was a we big have art- a videographer like that. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, he came out to the Kimball and got better images of this doodle, basically. And it became clear what it was. It was a very quick compositional sketch. It couldn't have taken more than 15 or 20 seconds to, to do, but a very quick compositional sketch of this fresco in Florence in the church of Santa Maria Novella. And that's the exact fresco that the artist Gerlandio's studio was said to be working on when Michelangelo in the Gerlandio studio was said to have painted this painting. Mm. And it, 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 it couldn't be bad. I mean, the attribution can't be questioned. That is amazing. You came up with the evidence that no one, not only did you it's, get the, you like all of these great events, but then to have the evidence, this. But it, it also, it's amazing that we had the painting for six years and something as important as that we, we didn't know about until this new technology was created. Well, and, cause you knew in your heart, it was the real thing. So well, you didn't have to is, prove we, it to anybody. Yes. And, and it was, yes. And we, we knew it had to be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's, but before we bought it, we were as critical as we possibly could be. Yeah. But. Uh, it, so we, uh, if you had to put a price on this, I know you can't talk price. What would this be worth on open market? Is it, are we talking 30, 40, 50? Or is it much greater than that? 30, 40, 50 million? Oh, thank you. Thanks for the price. <laughs> Thanks for um, the jerk. Can you speak to that or is that untouchable? I will tell you the, the truth. I don't know what it would bring. There's, there's, there's nothing like this that has been sold. Right. I mean, Michelangelo is Michelangelo paintings, quite frankly, are rarer than Leonardo's. Um, there are four easel paintings by Michelangelo. Um, and he's, uh, he's one of the most important artists in the history of art. Right. Uh, well, unfortunately, we have to keep moving on to the last piece. Um, I know we could talk about the art in the Kimball for days because there's plenty to speak of. We could only do six on the show, but the last piece is probably the most known piece that, that the Kimball owns, uh, Caravaggio, who's an Italian painter. This is the card sharps. Most people recognize this image, um, circa 1595. And I know it's one of the most important pieces in Western art. Uh, JW and Brenton playing cards with Eric. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, this painting is an absolute landmark in the history of art. And, uh, uh, this is the painting that we believe, um, more or less established Caravaggio's reputation. He painted this when he was a fairly unknown painter working in Rome and a major collector saw it in an art dealer shop. He bought it, invited Caravaggio to live in his palazzo and arranged for important commissions in churches in Rome. And uh, Caravaggio was one of the most influential artists and best known artists working in Rome from that point on. And he created a new type of style that was, as I said, very influential. And, uh, and so uh, later artists like Rembrandt 
would not look like the Rembrandt we know today, if not for Caravaggio. Rembrandt may never have seen an actual painting by Caravaggio, but his style was transmitted to the Netherlands through followers of Caravaggio. And and um, so Caravaggio's style had a huge impact on Rembrandt and and so many other artists. So, you know, this this is just such an important painting. And the story of its acquisition by the Kimball is sort of like the Michelangelo story. We know because it was so famous um, after it was painted, it was copied dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And we know everything about the early history of the painting. We know which wall and which palazzo it was hanging on until the 1890s. And then um, the then owner sold it and the city of Rome accused the seller of illegally exporting it. There was a trial and the city of Rome ended up granting the export license under the condition that a number of paintings be given to Roman museums. And, uh, and so that happened. The painting um, disappeared for almost a hundred years. Um, but every few years, a painting would show up, one of the copies, and it would be presented as the original, and they were always shot down until this painting appeared in, as I said, the 1980s. And uh, the painting was sh- shown to, um, well, I-, I believe curators at the Met saw it, and mm-hmm. I think that they thought at first that it was one of the copies. And I think curators at the Getty saw it, and they thought it was one of the copies. Um, and then it was shown to Ted Pillsbury at the Kimball who saw it with John Brealey, the conservator at the Met, and they thought that it was the original. And uh, and the Kimball entered an agreement in which the Kimball had first right of refusal, um, but would be allowed to clean it and study it, which is what happened. And uh, and then, like the Michelangelo changes that the artist made appeared all uh, appeared in the painting, indicating that it was the original. The smoking gun came when an old lining on the back of the canvas was removed and the seal of Cardinal Del Monte, the documented original owner, was found on the back. And we always said that was a smoking gun. And with the Michelangelo, I said, you know, it, the rediscovery of the Michelangelo is so much like the Caravaggio, but it lacked that smoking gun until that doodle was identified. Right. And that that's the smoking gun. So the Michelangelo. is it, I mean, this is my mind's going to like watching um, a spaceship take off in in the NASA control room. And you guys are all around here. I had no idea that there was this much kind of mystique and and then competitiveness, clearly, because you have these museums almost not competing. But but, you know, as you said, that the Getty passed it on in the mech and then all of a sudden we get it here and you've got guys that have said, no, 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 we we think it's the one we can prove it. And then there you see the the shuttle lifting off. I mean, that's got to be a great moment. Uh, not, I mean, not only professionally, but in a personal sense too, right? Well, it's so satisfying when something like this uh, is proven to be right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Caravaggio, it's also it's it's amazing that a painting that important could be acquired in the 1980s. But that's the thing about the Kimball. When you walk around the Kimball, it's unbelievable what the acquisition dates are. When the Kimball opened in 1972, so many people said, well, it's too late to form a truly great collection. It's just too late for that. But the Kimball has proven time and again that that Mm -hmm. simply is not true. 
And uh, the Kimball has had incredible luck in, uh, in what it's been able to, to acquire. So we're leaving for Vegas this afternoon. Would you like to join us? Because I believe that <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it could be very fruitful. Eric, well, we, I'm going to have yeah. very good luck after appearing on the show, as you said, <laughs> yes. Every, everyone does. Eric, we have enjoyed your time. Uh, not uh, not quite yet, Brenton, but our last question we ask all of our guests. Okay. Uh, besides any familiar affairs, wife, children, we know you have kids, that you had kids at Trinity Valley where we both attended, but besides familiar affairs, what was the best day of your whole life? Not family. Not family at not all. Family. Everybody tries to bring it back around to some baptism or some kid getting married. But no, no family and just the best day of your personal life. When I learned I had the Kimball job. So. Uh, what a great answer. And well, for, you should get a big bonus for that. That well, is great. grateful to have you. The Kimball's grateful. We love you. Thank you for being on the Thank show, you. Mr. Eric Lee. Thank Thanks, you. Eric.